2: So glad to be here with you on this sunny day from Chicago, Illinois. How is everyone? I hope that all of you ladies out there had a fabulous, fabulous Mother's Day. And you know, even for you ladies who are not moms, you have certainly bestowed those wonderful nurturing qualities on many people throughout your life. So hopefully you treated yourself to a wonderful and relaxing day as well. Gentlemen, your turn is coming up. Well, I had a Fabulous week last week, and it included a really lengthy and fabulous conversation with Jack Canfield. He and Mark Victor Hansen, if you don't know, wrote uh, the Chicken Soup for the Soul books, and I learned some really interesting things about that process, including that they were rejected by 144 publishers before they really, really had to talk one of them into, a Florida publisher, into accepting their book, saying that they were certain it would sell a few thousand copies. Imagine that. So if that isn't a mindset for success, what in the world is? Go, go ahead and check out our chat, my article over on Ink Magazine at ink.com slash author slash Marla hyphen tobacco or just go to ink.com and 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 search on my name and you'll find all my articles there. But this is a really, really fun one. And uh, you know, we have such a long and fabulous conversation that there I think are many articles <laughs> coming out of it. So so keep your eyes peeled for that. But go there and learn about Jack's E plus R equal O theory, which is uh, a principle that he lives by. And uh, it, it's, it's so simple and so fabulous. It's sure to contribute to your success. So speaking of contributing to your success, we have a couple of wonderful, wonderful guests here today, and I'm very excited to speak with them. You know, do you ever look around in social media? I think that is probably the one downfall of social media is, is you see all these other entrepreneurs who are doing better than you are, right? I remember when I first started coaching and soon after social media uh, started to be Become prominent, And I went ahead and I followed all these fantastic, successful coaches and I got depressed <laughs> and I wondered how am I ever going to do this and now those coaches are my peers and we collaborate together and do fun stuff together so you know what it's mindset strategy and knowing what to do and that's what we're going to talk about today you know do you ever look at those other entrepreneurs and see them making a lot of money and having the time to enjoy it right? Then you wonder, well, why can't I do that? You know, I have a good business. I have great ideas. I have what it takes. What separates those business owners who climb the ladder to success from those who struggle? Well, in their new book, Let Let Go to Grow, Why Some Businesses Thrive and Others Fail to Reach Their Potential, Doug and Polly White share the results of their research of over 100 businesses. Now, the Whites have over 50 years of combined business. Experience and they've got some insights that have been overlooked in the business world until the publishing of their book. Doug and Polly White are principals at Whitestone Partners. It's a management consulting firm that helps small businesses build the infrastructure they need to grow profitably. Now, the whites have been featured in Entrepreneur and Soon Inc. magazine, CNN Money, HuffingtonPost.com, Virginia Living, U.S. Daily Review, America's Radio News Network, and recently on several CBS affiliates as well. And today they're here to share their research and their, their wealth of wisdom and experiences as, as we talk about identifying and moving away from those behaviors, that mindset, that may cause your business to derail. So I would very much like to welcome Doug and Polly White to The Million Dollar Mindset. How are you two doing today? We're doing just fine. Thank you so much for having us.
1: Thank you very much. Oh,
2: absolutely. I've been really excited to talk to you. I've been enjoying your book and and seeing some, some really great stuff in there. And you guys certainly have done your homework. So thanks for coming on board. Absolutely. So I'd like to know a little bit more about the two of you. I know that you, between you, just have a wealth of of business and life experience. What drove you to doing this research and writing Let Go to Grow?
0: Well, as you know, we're management consultants, and we were working with companies and began to see that our clients were struggling at various points, and we wondered if this was a pattern.
3: Right. And, and so we, we went out and started chatting with these entrepreneurs. We, we as you said, um, spoke to more than 100 CEOs of small and mid-sized companies and asked them basically a set of questions about how did they make it in their business? How did they overcome some of the hurdles that faced entrepreneurs, and, and and how were they successful
0: in jumping those hurdles? And what we began to see was a series of patterns. And one of the things that was very clear was that these entrepreneurs had difficulty letting go at various points in their business.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. Definitely. I see that as a business coach myself. And, you know, I work with those businesses who are at that revenue point where they really need to start hiring others to do the work so that they can step into the entrepreneurial role. And it's a tough gig letting go. Wow. People really, really struggle. It
3: really is. And and what we found is that there are some very predictable transition points for all entrepreneurs. And it really doesn't matter what industry you're involved with because we don't tie these transition points to the normal predictors people use in business. Um, defining what is a small business, what is a mid sized business. We don't look at dollars of revenue or numbers of employees when we when we look at that, but we have a new way of classifying
2: business. Ugh. Thank you. I worship you already. Can I just say that? Because, you know, I'll tell you, I go out and I say, well, I work with small businesses. And, you know, I mean, small businesses has has been classified as anything under $10 million. And it's like, no, my businesses would would die to be at a $10 million point. That's not who I work with, you know. So tell me a little bit more about this classification you've you've found. So for
0: us... A micro-business, the smallest of businesses, is when the principal is doing the primary work of the business. Now, he or she may have a helper or two, but the preponderance of the revenue comes directly from the work of the principal.
3: Right, and then we look at the next stage, which we call small business, and that is when you've grown your business a little bit. You have a few employees now, and you've really switched your role from being one of doer, doing the primary work of the business, to now as the owner, what you're doing is hiring and managing those people who are really bringing in most of the revenue for your company. So you can see there's been a real switch here between being a doer to being a manager.
0: And that's tough for some people. For us, a mid sized business occurs when there's at least one layer of management between the owner or the principal and those doing the primary work of the business. And that may seem like a small transition. You go from managing workers to managing managers. We've actually found it's a huge challenge. Right. It's actually what we call the
3: big chasm because that chasm is the one that's the hardest for entrepreneurs to jump over because giving, becoming a a person who runs an enterprise, actually having managers underneath you means that you're going to have to give up a measure of control because you're going to have to delegate authority to this group of managers and give over the tactical decision-making.
0: And for a lot of entrepreneurs, that is a very, very difficult thing to do. This is their baby, and giving up control is tough. Mm-hmm. The, the thing, though, that's, that's sort of oxymoronic about this is, at each step in this process, the thing that the owner has to let go of is the very thing that made the business successful previously so as a micro business the business was successful because the owner was very good at doing the primary work of the business when he or she transitions to a small business he has to let go of doing the primary work of the business
3: right and now they've got to become that very good manager and hire of the primary workers and unless they can switch their role give up doing that primary work they're never going to be able to grow their business. And then when you get to be a mid-sized structure, once you've put in those managers or supervisors into authority positions, now your role really switches
0: again. Now you have to delegate decision-making authority to those managers, and that's probably the very thing that made you successful when you were a small business. You were really good at making tactical decisions, really good at hiring and managing workers. Now those things have to be delegated to your managers. And, that makes it all that much tougher. hmm
2: And when, when you talk to your clients about this, th- this is some of the um, pushback that I get when I, when I discuss these things with my clients is a fear that I hear in their voice when they say, well, if I do that, what will I be doing?
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so one of the things that, that we do is we, we say, yes, you have to let go of things, but you also have to pick up additional responsibilities.
3: Right. So as the micro business owner, you did the primary work. And when you Move into the next role. Once you've got employees that are doing that primary work, you need to learn how to manage employees, and you need how to learn how to hire employees, and those are learned skills.
0: Now, as the manager of a small business, you will also maintain a couple of things you did as a micro business, which is you're still going to be responsible for setting strategy. You're still going to make most all of the tactical decisions. So, yes, you have let go of doing the primary work of the business, but you've got four things you're now responsible for. When you transition to Uh, mid-size, you're going to let go of tactical decision-making, the hiring and managing of workers. You're still going to be responsible for for developing the strategy. But the one thing we say that is worse than not delegating authority when you need to is delegating authority before you've built the proper infrastructure. And you're going to become responsible for three more things.
3: Right. The first thing is you've got to get those good managers in place. So you're going to be busy managing the managers and, and hiring in the right folks developing them mentoring them making sure they're on track number two is you've got to have we're going oh, yeah. to
2: go into breaks so I'm gonna interrupt sure. you here and no I can't problem. wait to come back and hear these other two. <laughs> Thank you
1: unlocking the secrets in you to create a happier more balanced life through abundant thinking and attraction power. It's The Million Dollar Mindset with Marlon Tabaka. And we'll be right back after these. It's time to capture the simple piece of the Amish in your own life. Amish Wisdom with Suzanne Woods-Fisher. Thursday afternoons at 5, 4 Central. Each week, Suzanne will have conversations with guests about living a life that incorporates principles of the Amish without going Amish. She'll cover the practical, simplicity, slowing down, reducing clutter, putting the brakes on materialism. The historical, how have the Amish survived for 400 years? How can we hold on to what we hold dear? And the spiritual, treasuring important values, honoring the past, and increasing peace of mind. You don't have to become Amish to make personal peace a reality. Amish wisdom will help all of us live a simpler life. For more information, go to SuzanneWoodsFisher.com. With Amish wisdom, Suzanne offers us a glimpse into a world of peace, serenity, and total commitment to family and God. This show just might change the way you live your life. It's Amish Wisdom with Suzanne Woods Fisher. Thursday afternoons at 5, 4 central on toginet.com. I am not the woman I used to be. I'm free with Minister Diane Jones.
2: Do you sometimes wonder if you aren't your own worst enemy in your own business? Is your business close to derailment because of you? Ouch. That's hard to take, isn't it? But you know what? You can change that all. And we're here having a fascinating discussion with Doug and w- Polly White, who are the principals at Whitestone Partners, a management consulting firm that helps small businesses build the infrastructure so that they can grow profitably. And I love the system we're, we're discussing already, and that's the the uh, necessary and effective use of delegation and what does an entrepreneur do once they've delegated all the work. <laughs> and going into break, Polly, you were listing the three main criteria here. And so why don't we recap and go back into that?
3: Terrific. Thank you. Yes, as we mentioned, the first first part of the three legs of the infrastructure stool, which is what we call it, the first leg is to have the right managers in place. And something I didn't say before, but which is an important thing to, to note, is that hiring managers or putting managers in place is really different than hiring primary workers, and we kind of struggled with this when we were first writing the book.
0: We did struggle, and because we thought, well, it's, it's still hiring people and the same principles apply, and, and actually, Polly is the one who had the breakthrough insight on this, and it, it occurred to her at 3 o'clock in the morning, and it was at that point <laughs> that I discovered the one downside to sleeping with your co-author. <laughs> and, and that is that when she has an insight at 3 in the morning, she wakes you up to tell you about it.
3: <laughs> yes, actually. She will. <laughs> I did. I did. I woke him up and I said, I've got it. I, I now know what is the difference between hiring managers and hiring primary workers. And, and this is going to make sense to you. It is a make or buy decision at the management level. So, in other words, are you going to hire primary workers who have potential and then grow them and develop them and mentor them and train them so that by the time you need a manager, you have somebody who can handle that responsibility and you can slot them into that position? Or are you going to need to go outside of your organization and
0: buy talent? And one of the things that that can create is some excruciatingly difficult decisions for entrepreneurs, particularly if they've done what we've seen so many of our clients do, which is to hire friends and family.
3: Yes. They, they tend to go with the familiar and what they consider to be the safe when they're first hiring employees. And so they hire their their Uncle Fred and their cousin Gene, and, and they bring them in because they think, okay, these are family members. They're going to do a great job for me. And maybe they do in the beginning, but there can be problems.
0: So Uncle Fred may be a great widget maker. And when you hire your second widget maker, this new widget maker normally slides in underneath Uncle Fred because after all Uncle Fred knows how to do it and then you get a third and a fourth widget maker and pretty soon Uncle Fred is no longer primarily a widget maker he's a director of manufacturing but maybe Fred doesn't have that skill set and particularly if you've raised his compensation as the department has grown you may be in a place where you've either got to layer Fred and reduce his compensation or worse You've got to terminate him, and that can create some really difficult Thanksgiving dinners. I mean, can you imagine? You know, Uncle Fred, sorry I had to fire you. Pass the turkey, please. In fact, we met one woman who had dealt with this.
3: Yes, in in one of our interviews, we talked to this woman of a very successful business. In fact, um, she won the Nationwide Small Business Person of the Year from the SBA one year, years oh. ago. So this is a really successful entrepreneur. And she told the story of having to fire her sister oh. twice.
0: No. She fired twice. her twice.
3: So she, she hired her, realized this wasn't working after a few months fired her sister, and there was such an uproar in the family that she hired her back, and then just within a few days said, oh, I now remember again why this isn't (laughs) working. And so she fired her a second time, and while it's kind of humorous, it turned out to be really sad because she said, that family gatherings just have never been the same. So we were saying that the first thing is
0: to get the right managers in place, but there's two other legs. The second one is to have good documented process. And we literally mean writing down the way you want things done. That can be tough for entrepreneurs because it's not very sexy. Nobody's gonna pay you an extra nickel because you've got good documented process. But it is the way that you communicate to people how you want things done it's the way you ensure consistency
3: right and it also goes to quality assurance because if you've got people who have good documented process and maybe they're all do- and they're all doing it the same way and then somebody comes up with a better way to do step 6 well mm-hmm. now let's change step six for everyone. If you don't have a good process in place, and everybody then is tending to do things in different ways, there is really no way to make good quality improvement. Now, the third step of the stool is metrics.
0: It's it's metrics, and metrics are in part good P&Ls, and we find that we often have to recast our clients' P&Ls so that they provide more information for decision-making. They may be completely adequate for doing tax returns, and that's why the CPA has put the P&L together, but they're not providing the management information uh, that's needed. So things like job-level profitability or product line profitability. Uh, And P&Ls are an important part of metrics, but they're certainly not sufficient.
3: Right. What we say is that you need a set of daily, weekly, semi-monthly metrics that are specific to your business that you're going to look at to let you know that your business is actually running wonderfully well, even down at the deep levels. Once you put that layer of management in in between the owner and the primary workers, they're never quite sure because their hands aren't on everything. They're never quite sure everything's running well. Well, metrics, we say, is what will help a business owner sleep at night.
0: So if you've got those three things, the right managers, good documented process, and metrics, then you can safely delegate decision-making authority to these managers and hold them accountable. And what's the, man- what's the owner doing? The owner, of course, is making sure that this system is put in place and that it's continuing to work.
2: Wow. And so, can you give us an idea of the different kind of metrics between companies who maybe are service-based and companies who are product-based? I think it's a little well, more obvious with the product-based businesses.
0: Well, we, with the product-based businesses, there are a series of metrics that you, want to, that you want to look at continuously. The first is, you really need to understand product line profitability. You need to understand how much each of your products are making and then there are a series of other metrics that you're going to look at uh, like the uh, uh, how efficiently you ship things out or your shipments mm-hmm. going out on time mm-hmm. you're going to look at inventory uh, relative to some goals that you've established you're going to look at accounts receivable those are pretty typical things on the service side it frequently boils down to job-level profitability. So if I have a home health care business, do I understand how profitable Ms. Jones's account is?
3: Right. Down at the client level, so using that home health care example, because most people understand how those companies run, you need to understand at the client level, is Mrs. Jones versus Mrs. Smith Mrs. versus Mrs. Rubio, yeah. are they all all profitable, and usually that equates to making sure that you, you've got a certain amount of spread in between the caregiver and, and the, what the client is paying.
0: So, for example, we frequently will try to give our clients, who may not be financially sophisticated people, rules of thumb that they can follow that are very helpful. And Polly was just mentioning one. We had a home health care client where we suggested that they keep a $7 spread between what the client paid them and what they paid per hour to the caregiver. And that if they did that, they'd be making enough money on each case to run a profitable business. So those are some examples of of metrics that you'd see in a a, a product-based business versus a service-based business.
2: Mm Very good. And and so we're on the topic of metrics. And another popular topic out there in regard to this is uh, metrics in regard to uh, social media and marketing and PR. Um, is, is there a way that you suggest that companies keep these kinds of measurements as well? Well,
3: the first thing we would tell you is that social media marketing, and in fact, we just wrote an article entitled Social Media Marketing is More Than Friends and Followers, mm-hmm. uh, because we, we find that people look at, well, how many, how many friends did I get? Well, that must be a really great thing to be measuring, and it is in part, but it can't be the only thing you need to be able to do you're you're down and dirty marketing 101 to begin with
0: yeah, social media marketing is just another way of reaching out and touching potential customers so we think that there are a series of things that have to come before you load up your Facebook account and start trying to get friends the right. first is you've got to understand why would a prospective customer by your product or service rather than a competitor's?
3: Right. It's the simple question of differentiation. What makes you different? What makes you better to a specific niche of the market? So then, is there a niche of the market? Is there a segment of clients that would appreciate that differentiated position? and be willing to then buy your product. And number two, of course, is that segment of the market large enough to support your business?
0: So the silly example we use is you could market a skunk-flavored popsicle. That would be different. There probably isn't anything else out there like that. But I'm not sure that there would be a segment that would appreciate that difference that would be large enough to be able to build a business around.
3: Right. I I like to say there might be an eight-year-old boy market that might like a a skunk-flavored popsicle, but beyond that, not so great. So is is there a segment of the market large enough that would appreciate that? And then, then the simple next question is, so how are you going to reach that segment of the market?
0: So, for example, if you've d- decided that your target market segment is septuagenarians, you probably are not going to want to launch a Twitter campaign. That is not the way to get to those folks.
3: No, you're going to have to find a more traditional method of reaching them. But in a lot of cases, social media might be a good thing. But then there are so many different forms of social media with Facebook, with Twitter, with Pinterest, with Google Plus and, and you start looking at where are you know, what are the demographics of that segment of the market and and, and who's going to what. We know that Pinterest is primarily female. Where Twitter You can reach internationally with no problem at all. There are different aspects of each of the different social media uh, platforms that could be great for your product, depending on what it is. So Okay, and I'm going to interject
2: here. We're going into another break. When we come back, I'd love to talk a little bit, continue this, and then talk a little bit about the mindset. What do you see is the difference in the mindset between the people who are ready and willing to delegate and those who just hold on?
1: locking the secrets in you to create a happier more balanced life through abundant thinking and attraction power it's the million dollar mindset with marlin tabaka and we'll be right back after these believe in your fairy tale to make your zing come true i love it debbie glickman and diana cohen know it Join these soul sisters on toginet.com. Believe in your fairy tale to make your zing come true. Showcases two sides. One, to help entrepreneurs showcase their products and tell their story of their happily ever after. And two, to interview people who have realized their own fairy tale and doing something to benefit others. This show is here to help folks who have an idea and want to get it off the ground, as well as to inspire people to make the world a better place by doing something extraordinary or out of the box to help others. Both of these entrepreneurs have their own businesses and websites with more information on their passions and successes. First for Debbie, FairytaleWishesInc.com. And for Deanna, TheNextBigZing.com. Believe in your fairy tale to make your zing come true with the Soul Sisters, Debbie Clickman and Deanna Cohen from 32 ways to stop a baby from crying to 14 ways to get a baby to eat and so much more it's Baby and Toddler Instructions with Blythe Lipman on Toginet.com. Welcome back to the Million Dollar Mindset if you're ready for a big change in your work your career, your happiness your life it all starts with attitude and Marla is here to help it's the Million Dollar Mindset on Toginet.com. and now, back to your host Marla Tabaka
2: well, I hope you're enjoying this discussion as much as I am. If you want to learn more about our guests today, Doug and Polly White, please make sure to check out their website at WhitestonePartnersInc.com. WhitestonePartnersInc.com. And do pick up a copy of their latest book, Let Go to Grow, Why Some Businesses Thrive, and others fail to reach their potential and as we were going into break we were discussing choosing the uh, right social media platforms for your business and you were pointing out Holly that yeah we know that Pinterest is largely female so um, and and women do really drive the economic force of this nation of of the world really but still it doesn't necessarily mean that you should go on there advertising your jockey shorts right (laughs) no absolutely not
3: and and women you are right. They are the purchasers. They are are the gatherers in in our society, and so uh, it's a great place to um, to be able to advertise anything that you can make visual. I I love Pinterest. We've been exploring it some with our business, but but more with, with certain ones of our clients who have products that would position themselves well on that platform.
0: So if you happen to be a residential realtor, Pinterest could be a fantastic place to post pictures of the homes that you've got for sale. But if you happen to be a defense attorney, I don't know if Pinterest is the right medium for you.
3: Right. It, it's pretty hard to put your client's pictures up on the, on the, the Pinterest and say, here are all the people I'm serving. But we have, for instance, this lovely gentleman down in Georgia who is an artist. He is a stained glass artist, and he does the most beautiful, beautiful work. And we said, why don't we just put a couple of his things up on Pinterest? We did. We tweeted it out, and somebody wrote to me immediately and said, I'm contacting your client. This stuff is gorgeous. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes it just works out that way.
0: So choosing the right type of social media is important, but even within a particular kind of social media, it's important to get the right connections. So let's take Twitter, for example. Not all Twitter followers are created equal.
3: Yes, yeah, so you can um, go online and um, you can find the Justin Bieber people. You know, they're just there to, to talk about Justin Bieber and, and so on and so forth. But there are a whole lot of people on Twitter right now, a lot of small business people that are looking for information. And so if you know how to reach out to that um, that group. if you know how to find them, then you can build a nice little following of folks that might be interested in, in what you have to offer.
2: Yeah, definitely. On Twitter, I always say I look for two types of people, the people I can learn from and the people I can teach. And I think that's just a nice way to look at who to follow and who not to follow, right?
3: I think that that's very wise advice, really. Nice way to put it.
2: Yeah. And so, um, you know, we always, we always use the, uh, the description of, the, of the three primary platforms as, as, uh, Twitter being like the cocktail party where you're just going to flit around and chat a little bit, topical conversation, Facebook being the backyard barbecue, much deeper people you know, people who may be friends, and LinkedIn being the boardroom. Um, where, where are we putting Pinterest? Got any ideas around that? <laughs> yeah. You know, I think it's so new and catching on so fast
3: and changing so fast that – I, I think we don't know yet. But I would tell you, I think Twitter is actually getting to be be deeper than just the cocktail party. Yes, I right. think it was the cocktail party when it first started out, and it was gossipy and celebrity stuff and, and those kinds of following. I, the small business community out on Twitter now is so extensive, and they're just hungry for information. There's so much good stuff stuff, good content out there that I think people are really starting to develop some a little bit deeper
0: relationships. It's certainly a fair comment that in 140 characters it's difficult to offer too much content. (laughs) But what we've seen a lot of success doing is Giving a headline in 140 characters and a link perhaps to an article we've written on a particular topic.
3: Right, and then that will get retweeted or somebody will comment on it, and before you know it, you've given out an email address and you say, you know, why don't you write to me? Or in another case, it was a business contact, and as you said, we connected on LinkedIn. Almost immediately and said, okay, let's, let's, you know, follow each other on LinkedIn. Let's connect there and, and so we can have a little bit deeper conversation.
2: So. Well, we're going to have to rename that, and that'll be a great ink article, too. You're just giving me a <laughs> great idea. Twitter, no longer a cocktail party. <laughs> oh, very good. Okay, what? we'll be looking for so it. So let's talk about mindset, because this is the Million Dollar Mindset. And I know there's a huge difference, um, core difference, in the people who are ready to take the step into delegation, delegating and the people who are really not so ready. What are the differences that you see in their mindset?
3: Well, one of the things that we talk about is that we, we tend to see a lot of either the desperate or the inspired out there. And, the, and those are the two categories we sometimes talk about. And, and when you have somebody, an entrepreneur who's really inspired, where they're visionary, they're looking out to the future, those people are often willing to let go and to delegate because they are moving forward and they know that if they're going to keep moving forward and keep moving on that they're going to have to be able to release something you
0: know they have a vision of their business being rolled out in twelve different cities and of Mm -hmm. course if it's going to be rolled out in twelve cities they can't manage the whole thing themselves they know that they've got to delegate at the other end of the spectrum are the desperate they get to the point that they're going to consider dele- delegating simply because they are completely overwhelmed.
3: Right. These people are, are – they have reached what we call the unhappy equilibrium. These are folks that there is so much on their plate. They are so overwhelmed. They're drowning. And so for every new customer that comes into their business, they lose one Because they're so overwhelmed, they're not giving good customer service, they're not fulfilling on time and so on. And so they've reached that unhappy equilibrium.
0: And this is the point at which sales stop growing. Uh, We often see profit go away, and we'll see entrepreneurs then become desperate and reach out. And with some coaching, they can learn to delegate. Now there's the group in the middle that's neither inspired nor desperate. Their life is going along okay, things are just fine. They're probably not going to make a big change like starting to delegate, because they have no real reason to.
3: No, their, their business is probably throwing off enough cash. They feel that their lifestyle is just fine. And, and so these are the businesses that we actually see that don't grow um, but maintain a good lifestyle and a good living for the owner and the employees for years on end.
0: In in fact, that was an interesting thing we saw in our interviews, because we had always heard the mantra that you have to grow or die. Your business either has to grow or you're going to die. We found example after example of wonderful little businesses that were providing a tremendous lifestyle for the owner and his or her family. They were throwing off lots of cash, and the owners had made explicit decisions not to grow the business any larger.
3: Right. They had decided that by staying the size they were, they could handle the workload. They didn't want to get more employees. They didn't want to open a new shop. They didn't want to expand into another city. They were happy just where they were. And and then succession planning may be an issue later on, mm-hmm. but but those were some of the conversations that we had with them. Mm-hmm. But right now, they were happy, and there was no reason to change what anything that they were doing.
0: In fact, yeah. we were interviewing one gentleman who ran a body shop, and he had 14 bays, seven mechanics. It's two bays per mechanic. He was one of the mechanics. And we were pushing him about growing his business. And I kept pushing and pushing. And finally he looked at me and said, Look, my house is paid for, my cars are paid for, my house at the river is paid for, my boat's paid for, and my jet skis are paid for. I don't need to grow my business. And I pushed back and said, But. What about retirement? Are you going to need to sell this business? What are you going to do?
3: Right. And he said, well, let me let me tell you. He said, see this big building you're sitting in? And we said, yeah. He said, it's paid for. My son is one of the mechanics. In a few years, I'm going to give the business to him, and he's going to pay me fair market rent on this building, which was X amount, and it was certainly enough, he said, to given that he had a lifestyle that was pretty much already paid for, he said, this will be plenty for me in my retirement.
0: And we pushed back again because that's just the kind of people we are. Uh-huh. And we said, okay, the only fly in this ointment is, what if your son is not ready to run this business? How are you making sure that he'll be ready to take this over? And he looked at us and said, every year I
2: take a longer vacation. <laughs> oh, I like that management style.
3: Oh, <laughs> uh, it, it was, And we left that body shop saying, this man is brilliant. There's not a thing that we can do for him except for learn a little bit from him. He's got a wonderful lifestyle for himself and his family, Uh, a business that there's no reason to think that he won't have business for years and years to come, and it won't then throw off enough cash for his son and for
2: himself. It, it, It was just such a lovely story. Well, I hope that they have many, many happy Thanksgiving meals together (laughs) after the retirement is implemented. Yeah. So we promised our listeners, gosh, we're offering so much content today. This is really exciting. Uh, We promised them five ways to flourish despite the economy. Are we able to squeeze that in in the last 15 minutes of the show? We have a break coming up in two minutes.
0: I think we can squeeze that in in the last 15 minutes. That shouldn't be uh, that shouldn't be too much trouble. Uh, why don't we do the, the the first thing? I'll just tee up the first of the of the points, and that is to focus on low cost solutions when the economy is struggling. Um, a lot of times you'll find customers want to start to focus on low-cost solutions. You know, our example is that in this downturn, Walmart has actually thrived because they have low-cost solutions. That's what customers are looking for. Um, There are other stores like Dollar Tree that have done very, very well because the downturn in the economy actually works in their favor, so entrepreneurs can focus on providing low-cost solutions to the issues that their customers face and the, the products and services they
2: need. Wonderful. And so we're going to go into break, and when we come back, that'd be that's a great example. We'll go on to the other. Five tips, And I'd just like to remind you that we have an article reading for you all to read over there on Inc.com about Jack Canfield's No-Fail Success Theory. It was just really fun speaking with Jack and learning about how he's actually found his way through success. And the one crucial principle that he's lived by since he was 24 years old. So you'll find those answers over at Inc.com slash author slash Marla hyphen Tabaka. So go check that out. And we'll be back here in just a few minutes with Doug and Polly White. And you can learn more about them at WhitestonePartnersInc.com.
1: Ready for the most current feel-good gossip? Then check out Daytime with Donna with your host, Donna Intercastle and sidekick Nina Fry every Friday afternoon at 2, 1 central on toginet.com It's
0: sampling.
1: Donna is a charismatic, market-driven entrepreneur who was part of the team that founded iVillage.com, which is the largest content-driven community for women today. Donna and Nina are here to empower you, motivate you, and encourage you in all aspects of your life. It's like Oprah on the radio. Plus, your chance to win great prizes, all the way up to a $500 Visa gift card. For more on Donna Intracasso, check out her website, introink.com Then join us for the show, Daytime with Donna, with your host, Donna Intracasso, and sidekick, Nina Fry. Friday afternoons at 2, 1 central, on toginet.com. Welcome back to the Million Dollar Mindset.
2: And we're in this final segment of this very informational show. Don't forget to join me next week on The Million Dollar Mindset with my guest, Jennifer Longmore. And we're going to talk about breaking through your financial barriers and your obstacles to success and that mindset that holds so many of us back. And today we're here with Doug and Polly White from the Whitestone Partners, whitestonepartnersinc.com. And I want to thank you both again so much for being here and for sharing uh, such a wealth of information with awesome. us and yeah we're talking about five ways to flourish despite the economy right and
3: and when we were last speaking we were talking about offering those low cost solutions and one of the things that we find when the economy turns down is that conspicuous consumption, you know, spending a lot of money on brand names and so on, actually becomes less popular. It's even considered a little gauche. Couponing is big right now. So anything that you can do to be seen as that lower cost solution is a really great thing.
0: So low cost is important. The second thing we find is that. Um, it's really important to provide customers with flexibility. During times of economic uncertainty, people don't know if they're going to have their job next month. They don't want to lock themselves into long-term situations that they can't get out of. So we see things like AT&T and T-Mobile touting cell phone plans with no contracts to allow you that flexibility to get out. We think that anything you can do to allay your customers' fears about being locked into something expensive that they, they can't get out of is really helpful when the economy is in a downturn. Right.
3: Do you remember just back at, at the beginning of the big downturn, in order to sell any cars at all, there were, there were some um, car companies that were actually going out there and saying, if you, dis- if you lose your job within the first year of owning our car, we'll buy it back from yeah. you. Mm-hmm. And it, those kinds of things that help to allay people's fears can just be so powerful at this time.
0: So the third thing is to offer opportunities that have short-term tangible paybacks. So, you know companies that are asking you to lay out a lot of money now and you'll make it back over the next 10 years Uh, may struggle even in a good economy but in a bad economy those types of offers are going to be just not well received
3: right you need to be able to figure out how you're going to show your customer right now that by buying your product by buying your solution your service they're actually going to end up saving money and saving money now not two years from now not six months from now but they're actually going to save money immediately that you are the the solution to their problem
0: the fourth point we've already talked about a little bit, which is to answer the one critical question every business has to be able to answer, and that is, why would a potential customer buy my product or service rather than a competitor's? Once you've answered that, you need to figure out which segment of the market values that thing that makes you different, and how are you going to communicate the message? And, And I'll just highlight that communicating to that segment is terribly important you know one of the things polly and i have uncovered is that we both grew up with a truth that turns out to be completely wrong <laughs> yeah and you know and that is you you've probably heard the old saying if you build a better mousetrap the world will be the path to your
1: door
3: mm-hmm. it, that is just a big lie the, the, the world is not going to be a ba- path to your door even if you have the mousetrap if they don't know you have it. So that that marketing, that getting your message out there is so critical. You have to figure out what is your segment of the market? What does your best customer look like? And then figure out what is the best way, the least expensive way to reach that segment of the market.
0: And the fifth and final thing we say is don't be afraid to ask for help. And this actually runs a little bit against the entrepreneur's mindset because a person who's willing to step out of the comfortable company job, go start a business, they're by definition the sort of individual who's willing to take a chance, who's gonna go it on their own, doesn't need any help, doesn't need a corporate structure. And one of the things we say is that's all great but there can come a time when you need some help. The example we use is if you were going to build a house, you could learn to do it by trial and error.
3: Right. You, you could read some books. You could go on Twitter and find some articles on, on how deep to, to dig your footings, how much concrete you needed to pour. You could figure out by books and schematic drawings how to put in an HVAC or an electrical system. You could you do, do all that yourself.
2: Mm. Mm-hmm. Just check out a few videos on YouTube, right? right, right. Oh, dear. On, you, could. Oh, dear. you could you
0: you could go try to build your house yourself, but you wouldn't. You'd go talk to an architect, you'd talk to a contractor, you'd build on the hundreds and thousands of years of experience we have building homes. It's not that it wouldn't be your home.
3: No, if you want a colonial, it's going to be a colonial. If you want to be more traditional or more transitional, you can build that. You know, you want a Mediterranean house? You wouldn't abdicate responsibility to the contractor to tell you whether you were going to have four bedrooms or two or whether or not you were going to have a formal dining room you would be making all those decisions, but yet you'd get help.
0: With those things that you, unless you happen to be a residential contractor, just don't know about. The thing is, running a mid-sized business is way more complex than building a house, but a lot of entrepreneurs are really reticent to ask for help.
3: Yes, people need to be willing to say, you know what, it doesn't mean I don't know if I go to a good coach, a business um, consultant, and just, you know, ask a few questions. Have somebody to bounce something off of. One of the things we find with our clients, well, and we get told this all the time, when they're at the top of their organization, they're the owner, they often have no one else that they can talk to they feel very isolated and alone in in the CEO's office. They may not feel like they can talk to their partner or their spouse um, about whatever's going on in their business, and they just need somebody else. That's the time to go get some help, to go out and, and just bounce some ideas around, talk about what your possibilities might be, look for somebody who has skill sets that are different than yours. Uh, somebody who you know can really help you out don't be afraid to ask for help it doesn't make you less of the owner of the business Mm -hmm.
2: and so so that makes me curious everything I've ever read and experienced in my life and working with very successful people and interviewing people who are successful like yourselves is that successful people have coaches and mentors Uh, do you agree with that
0: Yes, in fact, one of the examples we use is we talk about elite athletes, you know people who are absolutely at the top of their game. Nolan Ryan, when he was playing baseball, had a pitching coach you know you You pick the the elite athlete there 's a coach behind them, and often a specific coach you know uh, Tiger Woods, when he was at the top of his game, had a swing coach. Uh, the point is people at the top look at the top of corporations the CEOs of Fortune 500 companies they're often reaching out to people like McKinsey or Bain or BCG to get additional help
3: right but then you find the smaller entrepreneurs the ones that are you know just trying to to make a go of it they often think that Hiring somebody in to help them out shows some kind of weakness rather than saying, you know, here is somebody else I can learn from. And if I can just get, you know, pick their brain for a few hours a week or a month, I probably could take my business five steps further and, and, and many times faster than if I just try and figure it out through trial and error on my own.
2: Mm -hmm. Most definitely. And I remember when I first hired, when I hired my first coach, and the overwhelming feeling that came over me was, oh, I'm not alone anymore. (laughs) I know.
3: We affiliate with, um, we try and go see this other group of consultants um, a couple of times a year that, that, uh, that we've gotten to know. And just being in a room with peers, with other mm-hmm. people that you can talk to that have similar experiences or or different things that you can learn from. Uh, I think it's very refreshing for us and and very helpful. So we, we strongly believe in that coaching mentoring model ourselves. Mm-hmm.
2: And so we've got just a couple of minutes left in the show, Doug and Polly, and this has been uh, so informational and, and helpful. I thank you. And um, I'm curious about your own mindset working together as a married couple and co-authors and and you run your your company together, what would you say are the essential beliefs that you you maintain to make that all work?
3: Well, first of all, there's a lot that has to do with respect. Uh, Doug and I have very different skill sets. He is much more of the the quant jock. He is the numbers guy. I mean, he has degrees in physics and engineering, and besides his business degree. Uh-huh. And and mine happen to be more in the people realm. I spend a lot more time working individually with people or with groups of employees. And but even though he has superior math skills to mine. He respects the people aspects that I do, I believe.
0: Yeah, we say, you know, if you take the two of us together, you almost get a complete executive.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, more than that, I think. (laughs) Right, right. But one of
0: the things we think is very important is respect. And Polly and I have a deep respect for each other, not only on a professional level, but on a personal level. What that enables us to do is to always assume positive intent. If I hear Polly say something or if she hears me say something that you could take the wrong way, we don't take it the wrong way because we're, we're assuming positive intent. And maybe the last thing we'll tell you about is the ambition factor.
3: Yes. Um, we came up with that terminology quite some time ago. And, in fact, that was one of the articles, I think, in the Huffington Post on the ambition factor, which to us is how hard are you willing to work and what are you willing to sacrifice to reach your objective, your goal? And you – When you talk about the ambition factor, it's not that you both have these hard driving, you've got to both be ambitious. What you have to have is matched
0: ambition. Because if you've got one partner that's willing to work – 14-hour uh, days and the other partner who wants to work right. four-hour days, then you end up with issues. The, the partner who's working the 14-hour days may start to resent the other partner right. because he or she just isn't pulling their right. load. Alternatively, the, the, the partner who values leisure time may start to resent the partner who's working 14-hour right. days because you never spend any time with me.
2: Oh, right. Wow. <laughs> yes. Fabulous yes. tips for couples and, and uh, work partners out there everywhere and I just think Thank you so much for being here today, and I look forward to talking to you later in the week as we collaborate on our Inc. Magazine article. Thank you both. We're looking forward
3: to
0: it. Thank you so much.
2: We'll see everyone here next week on The Million Dollar Mindset. Thanks for joining us.